Considering our present advanced state of culture, and how the torch of science has now been brandished and borne about, with more or less effect, for five thousand years and upwards, how in these times especially not only the torch still burns, and perhaps more fiercely than ever, but innumerable rushlights and sulfur matches kindled thereat are also glancing in every direction, so that not the smallest cranny or dog hole in nature or art can remain unilluminated. It might strike the reflective mind with some surprise that hitherto little or nothing of a fundamental character, whether in the way of philosophy or history, has been written on the subject of clothes. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Welcome back to The Reader's Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I'm Carl Bookmarks. I'm Friedrich Pietsche. And I'm Soren Rearguard. We're glad to have you back, listeners. We're glad to be back at our full strength tonight as we tackle Thomas Carlyle's Sartor Resartus to kick off our final cycle of this third season on the name of the Rose. This cycle is called Mirth, and we're going to be reading some works that in one way or another we find to be funny or amusing or something along those lines. We'll get to Sartor Resartus in just a minute, but as always, a few items of business. You can follow us on social media, our last bastion, Twitter, at the Readers K. Friedrich has taken over the helm. It's going well, I think. I have, yeah. You can email us, thereaderskaramazov at gmail.com if you have any questions, complaints, feedback. If you want to find out where you can ship us delicious food items to try live on the air, <laughs> let us know. And uh, you can also get our pod on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on most podcast platforms for you. Leave a rating and a review if you so desire. And as always, we do like to ask, tell a friend about the pod. Recommend Say you found the perfect pod to listen to when you're taking a dump or whatever. Tell somebody so we can uh, take in the Tufel's rock. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> okay, so we are uh, back this week talking about Thomas Carlyle's Sartor Resartus. I'm going to throw it over to Friedrich in a minute. This is his pick to tell us a little bit about why he picked this very fascinating, um, beguiling, I might even say, text. But first, as always, I'm going to give you a summary. Friedrich has a running theme where he likes to give me the most impossible books to try to summarize. Uh, this book actually reminded me quite a bit of our last entry from last year, The Rings of Saturn by Tsebald. Mm. It's similar in so far as it's really hard to summarize what's going on in it, but I'll do my best. So in Sartor Resartus, which translates as The Tailor Retailored, the editor of the book, who is you know, roughly probably a Thomas Carlyle stand-in or something, is presenting to the British reading public this startling, groundbreaking work of philosophy on the philosophy of clothes. And he says he's presenting this text by this German professor, Diogenes Teufelsdruck, uh, which translates as 
Satan poop, basically. He's a professor of things in general at a German university. And he's giving the, the readers a rapturous tour through the world of clothes and how they really explain everything about human existence. Um, they are a symbol for everything in human life. So uh, the book is divided in, roughly into three parts. There's an opening where we're getting a lot of the supposed text from Teufelsdruck himself, translated and kind of commented on by the editor. And then in the second section, the editor is giving us his basic reconstruction of a life of Teufelsdruck from childhood up through his education and his breakthroughs and moments. He's doing this not through any sure biographical material, but by a sort of reconstruction as he's drawing these little tidbits out of these various bags that he's acquired that have little scraps of writing on them. Um, and then finally, in the third section, there are some broader meditations, many by sort of the editor himself on major themes, again, kind of returning to the work of Teufelsdreck. So it's a very strange work. Is it a work of fiction? I mean, I guess, yes, it's got some fictional elements, but it also feels like a work of pseudo-philosophy or something like that. It is, as we'll talk about maybe in a minute, kind of a satire. It is a very funny book if you're into that sort of thing, but it's a very odd and unusual and singular book in a lot of ways. So, Friedrich, do you want to tell us a little bit about why you chose this book and why you chose it in particular for this kind of section on mirth? Sure. And that, I think that was a great summary, by the way, Soren. I think you nailed it as best as anyone can when it comes to trying to summarize this. You know, it's a book that's sort of, uh, I've read it a few times and it sort of continues to puzzle me. I feel like I never really understand it and I never really understand its at least scholarly popularity. And so I want to talk about it with two people who I think do have understanding of aspects of it in various ways. It reminds me a lot of some of the figures we're named for and, uh, or who we at least admire. If we're the bastard sons of Hegel, then this is an appropriate book to read. It's uh, a response in a lot of ways, or even a an importation and maybe parody of German idealism and German romanticism. Famously, he says in this book, put down thy Byron and pick up thy Goethe, invoking that poet in order to tell his British public there's other stuff out there that you should be reading. And, you know, why, why for this season? There are a lot of reasons. I don't know if it's mirthful, but it's playful and it's Shandian. Uh, there's a lot of Tristram Shandy in this, very explicitly even. He, he cites shandy and it has that frame that we have in the name of the rose there's an editor or a person finding a text and putting it back together for us it's about putting a text literally putting something together in adso's case it was the remnants of the library and here it's the remnants of a person's life collected in bags organized by the signs of the zodiac but with no apparent order inside of those bags and so how do you make meaning out of things and then it, and then it concerns finally symbols and the making of meaning out of signs and the communication of that uh, which is obviously heavy in the name of the rose so there's a lot there and a lot to unpack and a lot that's confusing but also i think it's as i reread it it's it is fun and that's the that's what's holding us together for this last part of the season and i should mention that in the end of season one we read the warden by Trollope, and here we have Dr. Festimus Anticat returned uh, in the form of his true self, Thomas Carlyle. So next season, we're going to have to read Dickens so that we can get Mr. Public Sentiment and square that circle. <laughs> That's a beautiful throwback. Do go listen to our episode on Anthony Trollope's The Warden, which we talk a little bit about Dr. Pessimist Anticant, a.k.a. Thomas Carlyle. But maybe we'll start there, actually, with this question of, since that was from 
troll up a satire on Carlyle. Let's start with a generic question. Is this book a work of satire? And to what extent is it a work of satire? Because I found myself thinking as I read through it, I, I loved this book, by the way. I thought it was, I did think it was hilarious. I think it was laugh out loud funny at parts. If you can make it through some of the thickety syntax of it. I am wondering to what extent you find it to be a work of satire of German idealism. And to what extent is it a sort of an attempt to seriously wrestle with some of those ideas? I, I found myself drawn as I was finishing up the book to a passage near the very end, one of the final chapters where the editor has come back in. We've had this longest chapter on the dandy as a figure, um, which we can maybe talk a little bit more about later, but he comes in at the end and he says, um, he's discussing kind of how bad the chapter is from Teufelsdreck, and he says, or was there something of intended satire? Is the professor and seer not quite the blinkered he affects to be? Of an ordinary mortal, we should have decisively answered in the affirmative. But with a Teufelsdreck, there ever hovers some shade of doubt. In the meanwhile, if satire were actually intended, the case is little better. There are not wanting men who will answer, Does your professor take us for simpletons? His irony has overshot itself. We see through it, and perhaps through him. Which I thought it was a very fascinating kind of gambit right at the end of this book of, is this book itself, Sartor Resartus, is it satire? And if it is, like, is it good satire? Or does it miss the mark? Or what is going on with the sort of flights into fancy and absurdity that he takes us on? And then also the sort of serious ideas that seem to be mixed in with those moments of puncturing. I guess it depends on how you really define satire. There are plenty of satires in which the thing lampooned is sort of cared about more by the satirist and therefore they're trying to kind of revalorize it in some way and i take this to be that kind of satire and then there's the satire where the thing being satirized is meant to be totally abolished or ridiculed and taken down and either something or nothing put in its place and this doesn't strike me as that german idealism being the thing satirized and also the kind of spiritual autobiography of like a wordsworth seems to me here to be satirized for the sake of drawing us away from this the kind of somewhat ridiculous particularities of some of those texts and drawing those out to make us laugh a bit but also reminding us that those are just part of the kind of dense matrix of like really important meaning in life that one gets from a spiritual autobiography or a wordsworth or a goethe and those kind of 18th century novels showed us something and we need to really remember what that something is and by kind of making fun of it in a way and distilling it in this way with Teufelsdreck and then the editor commenting on Teufelsdreck, Carlyle's really trying to remind people of how important that genre is and you know the everlasting yay answers so many of these questions for him. To me that's that's not satirical you know I think he really thinks the his reader both of Teufelsdreck and the editor is meant to affirm that yay at the end of this book yeah I totally agree with with Carl and he said it beautifully with the the image of the dense matrix he said yeah there's a sort of an explosion of the romantic individual 
and the tale of like the sorrows of young Verger, who is like he has the sorrows of Teufelsdruck here uh, as one of the chapter titles. You know, this romantic capital R figure being teased and pulled apart into this sort of unidentifiable self. But in order to to underscore certain aspects of the philosophy and the art, the aesthetics that he does care about and does appreciate. And like Carl saying that everlasting yay feels really real. It's like satirical and playful until it's suddenly very serious. It reminds me not to jump to Soren, the host and the philosopher, but it reminds me a lot of like the pseudonymous Kierkegaard texts where you're like, well, it's not totally removed from what this person's trying to tell you. Like there's not a, it's not just taking on a persona in order to make fun or Hmm. throw a bunch of crap at the wall. It's doing something else. I'd be interested in Soren, what you have to say about it, you know, because they're near contemporaries. Just to take us on a small tangent, I guess, based on that, I I do think there is a strong affinity here, both in terms of a grappling with German idealism, a maybe not entirely comfortable grappling. I, I think Carlisle pretty clearly is more embracing of it still i think so yeah. than kierkegaard right. who, who largely largely rejects it although he i think still has a debt to hegel which and the hegelians which even he himself would to some extent recognize as being mm. real and valid there but but certainly he wants to kind of push away from them a little bit more than carlyle does but but i think you're right there's that same sense of a shared set of concerns, certainly, about the, the sort of burgeoning modern world. I believe, I'm always alert to this, I believe the word leveling comes up in here a couple of times, uh-huh. which is a Kierkegaardian concern. So so this idea of like a mass of people rising up that are crushing down the individual. Um, so, so I think there's definitely some some shared concerns there as well. And, and I like what you're, both of you are saying about this. Being a satire that is very loving of its central idea and maybe wants to, sorry for this, iron out some of the wrinkles while keeping thing, the, the thing itself intact. I think that's a really productive so way close of minded. thinking. Oh, uh, oh. Uh, I'm pleating with you to stop. But to, to think about a serious idea in ways that, that is still very engaging and funny. It, it makes me think a little bit maybe about last year's entry um, of Aristophanes, The Clouds, uh, and it's sort of... Um, what we might call to again steal from Kierkegaard a sympathetic antipathetic response to Socrates <laughs> that that play had, and this is a sort of similar thing to German philosophy as a whole, I guess you might say, right? Or to German literature, something like Goethe, German literature, right? Where there is a repulsion in some ways, but a greater attraction that's going on throughout the book. I think that's really that's really good. I wonder. If maybe, Carl, you were talking about this, there's a chapter called The Everlasting Yay that comes near the end of the biographical section. Tufelsdruck has had his heart broken by a girl. He's starting to renounce the world. There's a chapter, The Everlasting No, right? Then we get to eventually to The Everlasting Yay. And you you talked about that as a sort of serious central core for the book. As you were talking about that, that really opened up a, a reading of the book for me a little bit. And so I want to throw this out and see what you all make of it. I take the basic contention of Teufelsdreck to be that clothes are so important to human beings because essentially clothes are symbolic somehow of the inner life of humankind. And so there's a sense in which it's like, oh yeah, like you can laugh about it because he's like talking about all these, look at all these weird costumes that people wear. And it's funny in those particular moments. But then what he's saying is essentially 
there's an underlying like symbolic meaning here that's critically important to human beings. And so I almost wonder if that's built in somehow into the structure of the book where we have all of these sort of like incidental foibles to the text that are what make up the funny parts. But then those are pushing towards a symbolic meaning of the text, which is it's really important to grapple with the place of people in the world. And you have to embrace this sort of overarching sense of wonder that we have in the world, which is a very romantic conception of the world. And so I wonder if you all buy that at all in that, like, the book itself has a sort of symbolic structure where we're dealing with all of these smaller incidental things that are maybe can be washed away like dross, but but then what's left at the center is some sort of very important symbolic meaning to what Carlyle's getting at. Well, for me, the like laugh out loud humor is like a proto Roland Barth sense of like semiotics of clothing is very important or whatever. And like a necktie is in fact a attempt at like a phallic representation in public or something or like let's you know teufel's dreck is meant to be this kind of character who might be kind of absurdly obsessing about the symbolism of clothing for humanity and as the kind of like academic who sees their very niche subfield as representative of everything everywhere throughout all of time he's meant to be kind of satirical in that sense but then the editor really shows us and through the editor carlisle is really trying to show us that clothing as this symbol is a metaphor for how a certain sense of platonism or idealism or the fact that actually someone like toiledrek would say like the clothes make the man but philosophically the way we're supposed to kind of understand that is like ideas precede reality sometimes right and people need ideas and sociality to survive and that's what clothes represents kind of on this meta level for the whole book and you know if you are not purely independent making those youtube videos which apparently are staged about like going into a forest and creating an amazing <laughs> living space out of nothing or whatever <laughs> friedrich knows Digging what i'm a talking pool about with a single tool exactly whatever, yeah. exactly yeah you find a stick and then you dig for four hours and then at the end of the youtube video it turns into this like hyatt resort or something if you're not doing that you're living in society and you're incumbent upon the way society runs for some things and as whatever aristotle says like human beings need sociality they need to communicate they need to be part of a group in some way and the second you enter that group you need what teufelsdreck calls clothes you need some sense of community and through that community there's this like higher realm of ideas and ideals that teufelsdreck is really interested in moving and shaping and in fact, the tailors are the people who change those ideas and ideals throughout time. And that's a very important aspect of history. The history of concepts and the history of ideas and, you know, platonic forms is this kind of thing he's really trying to revalorize for everybody. And he thinks like German idealism and German romanticism has, has shown us how important that is for history. So all of that, I think, is really kind of fascinating part of the book, too. You're illustrating a point about clothing being something in this book 
that's not just about appearances, performances, or putting out an idea of yourself into the world, but the very like capacity to re- render a self or to experience anything is done in clothing, whether that's clothing that you're wearing, obviously in this book, or the clothes of words and languages, which are then clothes that, that affect the way you think and the, the meaning you're able to make, that it's, as Carl was saying, highly social. The romantic individual whose biography we're trying to put together from scraps of paper in a bag doesn't have that sense of like rugged individual isolation uh, that we might sometimes associate with the romantic poet. Well, not rugged, but you know what I mean? (laughs) Because they're clothed in the things that preceded them. They are clothed in the ideas that preceded them. And to Soren's point, yeah, I think you're right that what's interesting about it is that if you're asking why write about culottes and clothes and shoes and what could this possibly matter to any of us it's sort of like well what aspect of this reality would matter to you as a thinker like if it's not the small thing then what would matter to you it's all the same thing i don't know he wouldn't maybe he wouldn't say that but it all speaks to the same existence that we're participating in yeah i think that those are both good sets of thoughts about the interplay between maybe the particular and the abstract in this book and the way that those are working together because Carlyle is clearly, you know, pressing on some big sort of abstract or grand questions, but doing so through the, the, the medium of these smaller little bits and pieces. That does make me wonder a little bit about something else about the structure of the book, which I think is really um, fun, which is this, we kind of alluded to it several times now, the sort of scrappy nature of the book, which is we get these little bits and pieces and Carlyle's clearly having fun with it because frequently what he'll do is he'll give us part of an excerpt from Teufelsdreck and then he'll, the editor will immediately cut in and say, well, that's enough of that. You know, we don't need any more of this. And he, he's always making these judgmental comments like, oh, what a great chapter this was, or this one wasn't very good. What was going on here? Like, what was he thinking? Right? So we're getting these the, the 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 text itself is very cut up, and really by the end we haven't had all that much of we've had a decent amount of, but not all that much of Teufelsdreck's actual writing. Instead, what we get are these little scraps and bits of other things, and of course that comes to bear most potently in the second section where we are getting these these zodiac bags of like information about Teufelsdreck's past. It's coming from his like German associate who's handing them off to the British editor, and. The editor doesn't really know what to do with them. He's like, kind of pulls them out at random. He's like, okay, this one kind of matches up with like childhood. So let's talk about that. But there's like, so all this surprisingly little information that's going on that we're getting about Teufel Dreck's past. And he seems to be saying like, that's okay because we can get at the real meaning of this, the symbolic meaning. But I'm wondering, it strikes me that that's sort of the method of the book is like, we got to hang on to all these little scraps and try to sort through them and figure something out. Which really works against, then, the idea of a lot of German idealism. Again, and this kind of takes us back to our our Kierkegaardian moment here, right? Kierkegaard's criticism of someone like Hegel is it's all about the system. It's all about this grandiose thing, um, and it's too big, and it's too overarching. And so we need to kind of get down in the dirt and dig in the scraps and figure out what's going on there. And so Carlyle does seem to be presenting us this picture of German idealism in a very unideal form in this form that works against systematizing. We, we are not able to systematize really at all the, the point of the book from the little bits we've been given or the point of Teufelsdreck's life 
from these little scraps that we've been given. So I'm wondering what you all make of the sort of scrappy nature of this book and how that fits into the ideas that are going on and maybe how, again, to metaphorize yet again, to how that fits into the picture of clothes, right? Because of course, oftentimes what a tailor will do, at least a thrifty tailor, is like take the scraps and make something out of them and turn them into something new. Like there's a apparently a service that costs a ridiculous amount of money where you can take old t-shirts and turn them into a quilt, right? That's like a memory quilt for you. Uh, don't do that, listeners. Send me $300 and I will do it for you and it'll be beautiful. But there's something to that, a, a sort of a thriftiness of method here that's going on. So I'm wondering what, what you all make of that in terms of the text itself. Two things to say about what you're you're bringing us to, Soren. Thanks for all those great thoughts. The chapter organic filaments strikes me as, as what you're talking about a little bit here really well, where through Teufelstreich, the editor and Carlyle are saying there's something in Hegel that's really enticing, especially to someone like Carlyle, who will later write on heroes and hero worship, which is a philosophy of history. But he doesn't like, as Soren was saying, this huge systematicity to the idea of history that will always lead towards this everarching goal and kind of fit this amazing mega system. Rather, the organic filaments will perhaps build up and be retailored or tailored somehow. And I'd like to talk at the end maybe about the, the dandy versus the tailor as the two ways of doing philosophy of history is kind of what this book is driving us towards. Philosophy of history is really important. History is really important. And the history of ideas is really important. But Carlyle's trying to break that from a kind of rigid Hegelian structure, which meshes really well with like a Kierkegaard and a Nietzsche and maybe less Nietzsche and Marx than Kierkegaard. But that, that project is really enticing to him. And, and so I think that's kind of one way to answer what you're talking about. It's almost as if, yeah, there's like, instead of having thesis and antithesis and synthesis, it's just that we keep picking up different parts of the cloth and synthesizing mm -hmm. them into a new thing. And then th those fall apart over time and you synthesize them into the next thing. And to say that there's like some sort of function playing against another function and they're producing the next thing and that there's a system that's, yeah, as, as you were just saying, that's unfolding in a scientific way. I mean, this book too is sort of like dealing with right, the that's scientific, where the satire right? really lands. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so as Hegel, much as it's, it's, a, it's a literal science and, and Carlos saying, that's funny, you know, like, yeah. obviously it's not. <laughs> I think you, and you're right to point to like on heroes, the heroic and, or hero worship and the heroic and history that it's like, okay, we, what's this alternate view of history? It's about these sort of stops and starts where suddenly there's this person who comes in, who has a new way of talking or a new way of behaving that shakes things up. It's, and that becomes, you know, for us in the 20th and into the 21st century, we don't love to view history as shaped by great men. But it's, I, I think even that for Carla is more in, it's reactionary. It's against the system more so than saying this is the only way history functions. But yeah, I, I think too there's there's some nascent scientism in this and the need to sort of classify things um, and order things that's running against the desire to like fictionalize and have desire and immaterial weirdness floating around throughout it that also disrupts systematicity and that also disrupts sort of the yeah the inheritance that he's messing with carl you have a thought 
Oh, yeah, no, I remember my second point now. Okay, so in the history of the novel, if you're interested in that, this is like often cited as a famous work. And I think it is really interesting in the history of the novel for really, it's strange given Carlyle's later sentiments as Friedrich really nailed right there on the, the great man theory and Friedrich the Great, his epic history of who he thought was a truly great man in history and the later Carlyle, who I think sucks in many ways and like that book Friedrich the Great translated in German is what like Hitler and Goebbels read in the fear bunker but when they know they're gonna die because it's like the best book ever um, by this guy who is like a weird honorary Nazi to them because he really understood everything about Germany to them and what what it means to be great in history and you know yeah the people who like that that theory of history you know tend not to be so great (laughs) uh, by many standards obviously but um at this time he's saying like what is interiority there isn't one it's just clothes and on the formal level we don't get any pining romantic interiority which is so weird that there aren't really characters with interiors in this whole book it's this very strange kind of alternate history of the novel where they're and we're trying to we're kind of getting to this point when we were talking about mirth and what this second book of aristotle would be where there isn't a persona who has tragic deep feelings but there are only these kind of flat faded beings who don't really have personhood in some way and they're just so flat and funny and that's kind of all there is his characters are really in that weird realm here and i like that i think that really he's doing something really interesting there by giving us all of this mirth and all of this flatness to Teufelsdreck whose whose pinings are kind of ridiculous because he's the devil's dung you know he's he's not that real to us in the way we think of reality so all of that kind of gets to this kind of organic filaments nature of history too that Soren was bringing us to and I think it's a really fascinating aspect of the book there's a sort of a like a Taoist flavor to parts of it that you're pointing at too. Like um, Alan Watts in one of his books is like, my daughter wanted to know what's the inside of a grape. So we cut open a grape and she said, okay. And he was like, no, no, now we just have another outside. So we need to cut it again. <laughs> he cut open. Now we have more outside. And, and that's very uh, Carlisle in this era, at least. What are you cutting into? There's just only more exterior. There's only more. Right. It's clothing. just scraps. Yeah. yeah. And later he says, you know, you need to annihilate the self right now to go Mm -hmm. to Mishima's world. You need to destroy the self in order to move forward. And, you know, maybe Soren could illuminate this for us too, but that's sort of, there's a little bit of Kierkegaard in here too when he's talking about that, that sort of collapse into despondency and to the center of indifference. It's very like night of infinite resignation. And then finally can burst through on the other side. And what's that change that happens in that moment just like in Kierkegaard it's sort of like indeterminate it's hard to say here's it's hard to name it it's like just a snap of the finger or something like that and it's interior but it's like the one thing in here that's not maybe I'm going away from the book a little bit it feels to me like the in this book it's the the one thing that's sort of interior is that everlasting no yay switch there's not really an exterior manifestation of it these are really great thoughts Carl I think you solidified something for me about this book which is one of the things that makes it so strange is that it is that middle section especially is the sort of german 
buildings Roman. But then it's like instead of a character like Werther, who's like largely interiority, it's like there's no interior there. It's just exteriority. And it makes this very, it's an uncanny sort of the way it goes along where you have the character where all of these romantic touchstones are happening to him. He's opened up to the world of ideas. He's, you know, becomes, he, he becomes enraptured by a woman, right? He gets his heart broken by the woman. He goes up to the mountaintop. But there's nothing nothing on the inside, right? And so it's so bizarre the way that it progresses. And really, I think maybe that's the most effective satire in the book is like is to kind of point at that and say like, well, okay, you know, it sounds great when you put a lot of feeling into it. <laughs> it's like the difference between having like a teenage goth girl like reading her poetry at a poetry slam and then you read it on the page and you're like what the hell is this right there's like you take away the interiority and there's nothing there anymore sorry teenage girls <laughs> um, too hot for network TV, <laughs> no, so I we're on the pirate radio here um <laughs> yeah that's really fascinating i think that's great carl I, I'm, I'm really glad you you spelled that out for me i, I want to go back to the organic filaments chapter for a minute and this is kind of kind of tie into what you were talking about Friedrich as well with the idea of a sort of collapse although I'm thinking about it more at the societal level at this point this is one of my favorite chapters in the book organic filaments it's near the end it's in this third section where he's kind of got these big ideas spinning around and he's just been talking about basically like society is collapsing everything's terrible we're at the end of an age basically I don't know whatever you want to call that a decadence society that's about to collapse think like the end of the Roman Empire or something like that that seems to be the vision that the editor is giving us the Teufelsdreck is maybe giving us somewhat but then in organic filaments he's like how do we live our lives in the midst of this do we just resign ourselves to everything's going to be terrible and it's it's going to suck for a while and then we'll finally be reborn but he says like that he uses the image of the phoenix right bursting its into flames burning itself out and then rising from the ashes and he says but it's not like that because it's not a single process. There's always both things going on at once. There's always mm-hmm. the dissolving into ashes and the rising from them happening simultaneously. And so I, I want to use this to, to begin to think about the way the book wants to think about living in the world and living in a world maybe of decadence and excess. And how do we do that ethically and how do we live our lives in such a way that we're not given over to utter despair Maybe another way of thinking about this is taking the other part of his name. We've talked a good bit about Teufelsdreck, but thinking about the figure of Diogenes, um, the cynic, right, from the ancient world, who, of course, is a man who's famously naked a lot of the time. He lives in a barrel, right? He's a figure of renunciation. There's a famous story, you know, probably apocryphal, but Alexander the Great comes to him and he's like, hey, I'm Alexander the Great. What can I do for you? And he's like, "Mm, get out of, you're standing in the sunlight. Can you get out? You're blocking my sun. He's a figure of renunciation in the face Mm -hmm. of great decadence. But that's maybe not quite where we land here in the book. I mean, there is an element of renunciation. We see that in the chapter on the dandy. He talks about two kind of figures, right? You have the dandy in Britain and then in Ireland in particular, he says you have the sort of the, the, the peasants who just wear, you know, all this ridiculous random stuff. He doesn't seem to be really on either of their sides, but he's, he wants to think about if you find yourself in a moment of great historical unrest, which he seems to think that he is in to some degree, the editor does. And, of course, that's a temptation that we face all the time. I think many people think that we are living in such an age. I'm, I don't know if I agree with that 100%. But 
there's a tendency to catastrophize the the present age, right? In, in a lot of ways. How do you then live in the midst of that? Do you ignore it? Do you say, well, everything's going to crap anyway, so I can do whatever I want? Do you do your best to try to live simply in the middle of it? It's a, it's a fascinating question to me, kind of writ large. And I'm wondering what you think Carlisle or the editor or even Teufelsdreck's answer is uh, in the book in terms of how do we then like live our lives? Well, Teufelsdreck has three answers. You can put on old clothes. You can be a dandy, put on all of the new clothes, or you can be a tailor. So I got to know of all three of us what you would say there. And metaphorically, right, the old clothes is... And what I love about Carlisle here and in, in what Soren's bringing us to is this very much like presages, almost kind of just says two-thirds or three-fourths of like the career of someone like Slavoj Zizek like you know we live in a decadent age or religious you know belief is somehow mitigated now or backgrounded differently and we're now in the secular age in a lot of different ways but therefore belief is now more kind of scattershot and heightened not less important belief is kind of weirdly micro infused into our lives in all of these different strange ways and it's kind of everywhere as opposed to before where it was a little bit easier to kind of cordon belief into big worldviews that you could see in people for Teufelsdreck that's kind of the dandy is out there with belief in multiple new aspects or clothes of ideology and then there are the tailors trying to remake belief into something new as this decadence is happening or as this decay is happening and then there are those interested in the old clothes who Teufelsdreck says let's take a minute and just remember how amazing how beautiful the old clothes were so I think those are his three answers which I think are really interesting I like that you're dividing it too as he does into three answers and not embracing necessarily any of them which is which seems to be right on for this book and I want to say you know more to the clothes symbology that he talks a lot about custom in this book, how custom makes daughters of us all. He talks, he rants early in the book about how man is a blockhead and a dullard, much readier to feel than to digest, than to think, than to consider. And that sort of reliance on the inheritance of the past, he doesn't want to embrace, even as Carl was saying, he does find beauty in it. Then there's that look to the future. The idea you were saying, Carl, about transformation of belief in this sort of secularizing age is interesting because, um, you know, that everlasting yay turn is like toward, toward like a sort of belief in what? It doesn't have an object. It's not like we're all turning back to Anglicanism and embracing it more fully or something like that. Um, it is this sort of secular affect. Then the other place I was thinking that you were talking about too is to bring us back to our Voltaire reading from a season or two ago, talking at the end of that book about cultivating your garden and just living that that intellectual life as best you can. In here, he sort of famously says, Teufelsdrock says, Our works are the mirror wherein the spirit first sees its natural lineaments. Hence, to the folly of that impossible precept, know thyself, till it be translated into this partially possible one. Know what thou canst work at. This is a book that's sort of early in that Victorian axiom to live through your work, to work to make your life, to love your work, that work is everything. And you know what that work is 
again, like what that belief is, it's vague and uh, indeterminate, but he seems to be saying, just work at it. And I, I, my question for you all is, is that the same thing that Voltaire is saying? Because Voltaire's brought into this a couple of times too. And I feel like it's not quite the same thing Voltaire is saying. Oh, definitely not. I mean, that's like a Weberian Protestant work ethic flavor that's definitely there. Like that Protestant Victorian work ethic kind of work calling is, and there's, there's that German roots to some of that for, mm-hmm. for Weber and maybe through Carlyle. But for Voltaire, it's a little cultivate is not work. Cultivation no. of a garden is not a calling or a sense of work that one does in the public sphere mm-hmm. in order to enact one's meaning publicly, right? There's a little bit of publicity to the cultivation of your garden, but it's mostly a private, more interior it's domestic um, or something it's with your friends and family and it's and it's more a sense of like find in the history of ideas the kinds of combinations the arrangements the garden the ikebana beauty in in history of ideas in the religious sphere maybe even too to go a bit beyond what voltaire would maybe think of um what makes life worth living it doesn't necessarily bridge the private public divide in in my sense of Voltaire but what I love about this book too is the takedown of Voltaire <laughs> um, by Teufelsdreck because there are a few moments there's where he's referenced specifically and he's saying like oh Voltaire you know who I you can imagine many Victorian like kind of hard-nosed religious people being like oh we we're not friends of Voltaire you know and he's kind of saying like so what Voltaire you know hates like he's and this a certain sense of French atheism, rejection of all institutionalized belief. He says, yeah, some people don't like old clothes, but new clothes are coming. So <laughs> let it be part of the process. Like wash it in the cycle. That's totally fine. Like big deal. And that to me is really one of the most effective aspects of the satire of the book. People who say, oh, the everlasting no, ah, pessimism is true. Schopenhauer's right. And everything in life is bleak and consciousness is so such a tunnel and there's so few aspects of reality we can ever really understand he's like so what you know (laughs) there's the there's the no and there's the yay uh there are the questions that we can ask and there's the other things that we can feel on the other side of those questions that we can say and what's what makes us weigh more heavily on these questions than these things we can say? Nothing, you know. It's it's just part of this this cycle that we're that we're in in this kind of spiritual autobiography. Something about that's really effective to me. I think one thing that you're kind of getting at there, Carl, is that I think the books have somewhat different conceptions of taste and what that means. And so, you know, that was a very important concept in, in Candide that we talked about matters of taste but but when you're cultivating a garden that taste is a largely a private taste a matter of tasting the things that you then produce it's a sort of subsistence lifestyle and of course food can become a public display that's true even in the middle ages or something but certainly of course it's true now as we're you know insert old man rant about people taking pictures of their food all the time but right there's that 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 publicness but 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 fundamentally like food if you're doing it right is about tasting and internalizing it. Whereas clothes, tasting clothes is unmistakably public. 
Mm-hmm. You're fashioning right? a public self. <laughs> Whoa. Like, yeah, that's it. That's great. That's great. No, yeah, absolutely. I like that. Like you don't generally, I mean, some people do like, they like, I don't know people like put on a suit just to sit around in their house by themselves. <laughs> I guess some people do that. But like generally speaking, if you're a normal person like me, you take off as many clothes as you possibly can when you're by yourself, right? <laughs> and so the clothes are there for the public. And and that plays into that sense of work then. I'm going somewhere with this, right? Which you're kind of talking about, Friedrich, which is the work that you do for Carlisle has some sort of lasting imprint, even if it is right going to fade away somehow or burn up in the ashes. There's some permanence in the sense of like, you can have hand-me-down clothes. You can't have hand me down food. I, I don't, I mean, birds can do it, I guess, but, uh, like you don't, you don't hand down that work from one generation to the next. Sure. Right. But you, you can with clothes, clothes last. There's a, there's a, and there's a custom, you know, that there's that very visible custom there, but also the innovation of, of the tailor, if you want to put it that way. Right. So, so I think that's really true that like, there's something Carla has a more optimistic, you might call it, view of work, whereas Voltaire's is maybe more quietist or something, right? It, it, it's like about, it's about resignation or private retreat somehow. And, and Carla doesn't seem to be there. He wants there to be some, some public element to what's going on. I, I, my last question was going to be, are we tailors or are we dandies? Or are we both? In the clothes philosophy... There's two kinds of there are two ways of being in the world for Teufelstreck, right? In history, as it, as you're saying, to make lasting imprints in history, either by being a dandy, wearing the most fashionable clothes of the time in order to impress a certain image on history and make that last, or to tailor up new ideas and new ways of being in the world for others, and dress the world differently you're either gonna fit in or you're gonna outfit oh yes well that's what carlisle leaves us with right and he'll go on to think a lot more seriously about his own philosophy of history and what it means to be a a mover and a shaker in the world and and in world history in some way i thought you already broached this subject earlier that's a bad not really clothing but you know accessorizing or in our own personal lives do we feel i i know at one point in his life soren was quite the dandy (laughs) (laughs) it's true i mean i'd like to think of myself as more of a tailor but i i I feel like it's much easier to be a dandy and Mm. and he talks about dandyism as as a sort of religion Right. right as a ma- sort of manichaeism revived he calls it at one point um but having this a, a sort of cultus around it to use a different form of that word of cultivation right a sense of worship and with that oddly then a sense i think you're right of of a constant need to refresh and redo and renew those things um versus the work of the tailor which is more lasting maybe uh, i don't know i mean you're always retailoring Right. Like you have to refashion the clothes that you're given to make them fit a little bit, even if you're not very good at it. And so like you're contributing to the, the handing down and some, some are better tailors than others. I can't help but think of, um, since we've been talking about a, a, the secular age, there's one tailor that stands out yeah. above them. All. <laughs> Charles. Charles. 
another way that this might be skewed is like, are you a critic or are you a scholar? Is your goal to sort of fashionably wear the right critiques of your own age and thus, you know, mold and shape opinion? Or is your job to kind of scholarly create a new form of garment or, you know, way of looking at the past or a new ideology or something, and thus tailor your society to some new shape. I aspire to be a tailor myself in some sense, but I'm probably just a bad dandy. (laughs) On that meditative question, I think we'll wrap up. We'll leave it to you listeners to decide for yourself whether you are more of a dandy or more of a tailor, but we are going to come back next time to talk about my final pick of the season, which is Flan O'Brien's The Third Policeman. We're going to take another crack at mirth with that strange, fascinating book. I think a book that pairs actually quite well with Sartor Resartus in some weird ways. We'll come back and talk about that um, next time. Stay tuned afterwards. If you're interested in dandyism, I can think of a few things more ever-changing than the lineup of Mountain Dew specialty flavors. <laughs> the very first ever postmodern food factory was, in fact, us, Ooh, particularly appropriately during Candide, sampling the Mountain Dew Major Melon. We're going to be back with another postmodern food factory tonight as we sample Flamin' Hot Mountain Dew. Um, so stick around to see. Pray if, for our dandiacal bodies. Yeah. We're, we're going to see if our faces melt off. We hope you'll join us for that. If you don't, however, come back next time. Join us for The Third Policeman. Until then, we're going to let Cat Keyboard play us out. Welcome to another episode of Postmodern Food Factory. Friends, you can throw up a little prayer to whatever deity you worship for our souls tonight as we try Mountain Dew Flamin' Hot. And this is reading directly from the bottle description that I have. Dew with a blast of heat and citrus. Yeah. Why are we doing this? (laughs) So Friedrich and I have the bottle in front of us. Carl, do you want to explain what's going on on your end here? So Friedrich and I 
on a road trip into the desolate heart of America. We're at a gas station and there was only one bottle <laughs> and of flame and hot left. Surprisingly, it was almost sold out. So we got that bottle, which after we bought it, we read more closely and found out it was expired, in fact. Yeah, July 11th. I, this uh, is now August 8th for uh, posterity. And we bought it on July 13th and found it was already expired. So. so I, who live in the true heartland of America, found my local store stocked to the gills with this. However, mine, which I bought today, is also labeled July 18th, 22. So we are... Drinking expired goods on air for your listening pleasure, you sick people. So um, I don't even know what makes the difference between legit flaming hot dew and expired <laughs> flaming hot dew. But yeah, cut. and then mine was opened yeah. out of Friedrich's uh, twenty ounce yeah. and put sealed tight into a clean canteen. <laughs> <laughs> this was also like two uh, weeks ago that we bottle. did that. So these have both. This has been sitting. So it's gonna be flat. Yeah. Yes. This is gonna be sitting open in my fridge for a long time, and that's been sitting in your fridge for a long time. Cannot put new wine into old wine skins, Carl. <laughs> that was your first mistake. Uh, so, so Friedrich, what do you notice about Carl? Can't do this exercise, but what do you notice about the bottle going on here? Um, I just like this little devil guy. Yeah. But how, is he holding a microphone? <laughs> he is holding a mic. He's a about vandal. to rock the mic like a vandal, I think. Um, <laughs> He kind of looks like related to the major melon melon guy. He um, reminds me very much of like a a a character in like a 1990s like SNES era platformer or like a cool spot like yeah yeah, yeah. exactly he could have exactly. his own yeah. his own thing going on here yeah. and he has uh, that dream that strike. DreamWorks animation like eyebrow uh huh you know what I'm talking about yes oh God. yes he does also why is he wearing like um like fingerless gloves oh, he does have fingerless gloves. <laughs> Must be hanging out with Carl. Fingerless gloves are awesome. <laughs> so he's he's too hot to handle, I guess. Um, yeah, this is very strange. I yeah, cannot... it's got this nice yellow and yellow and green border, though. I haven't yeah, seen him out like with it. a nice border like that, like caution tape kind of. But yeah, yeah. No, I like it. Um, the color what here. Color would how would you say you this? Yeah, what color would you say that is? We were just thinking the same thing. It's not orange is it i'm in a weird no i mean i'm not in great light either but well actually it's like when I hold neon it up, red when i hold it up <laughs> this is like but it's not like the code red red of a mountain dew oh, this is like a to me it looks like orange. gamer fuel oh <laughs> you know remember that yeah. one the halo yeah, I believe it's brand. game fuel game. sorry sorry yeah but that doesn't make any sense why isn't it gamer fuel you're not fueling the game is this fuel because for your game for you it's it's understood that you're a gamer. You, get game feel. you don't need to be called out as a gamer. <laughs> oh, okay. Are we going to, I can't, I can't wait any longer. All right, let's do it. <laughs> I'm going to, so mine's the only one yeah, who has, hear your, has the true uh, fizz. So I'm yeah. going to, I'm going to hold this up to the mic here. No fizz here. I've got a little bit. It smells like a healthy dew. Yeah, like it does not smell. Reminds me a little bit of like a, like a um, ruby red squirt, maybe. Dude, that's a nice grab out of out of your past. <laughs> I love ruby red squirt. I'll go to the mat for that one. 
grapefruit soda. Apparently too much grapefruit juice is like quite bad for you. Hmm. I believe it. All right. Are we going to um, <laughs> cut the chit chat? Yeah, I'm, I'm going for it. All right. Cheers. <laughs> I don't know if making if, if because it's flat and expired that the heat is like way way at the tail end. No, it's happening yeah. in mine too, and it's way in the back of my throat, like way down yeah. there. It's getting down there. Like it's like heartburn more than spice. It doesn't really appear to have any flavor to me. <laughs> Like I'm getting like no flavor and then it goes down my throat and I get the spice. Yeah. It's like do, do, do. Oh, there's a little bit of hot. I know what you mean about this sort of absence of flavor. I don't know what you would call it. It's like tastes like a color. It tastes like the color of this soda, but it doesn't taste (laughs) like a flavor. It doesn't even taste like Mountain Dew, which tastes like green. It's one of those things where, yeah, if it wasn't, colored red yeah. you would not know how to taste it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm. i do get like i will say this more so than certainly the major melon but some of the other ones i've tried this is recognizable to me as some sort of mutant cousin of mountain dew oh like, yeah yeah i feel like it was grafted onto the branch right <laughs> Like carnage is to venom. <laughs> exactly. Is to Ooh, this is the carnage. <laughs> it's clearly Mountain Dew with a little bit of flame and hot. It's not flame and hot. And That's true. It's not flame and hot dew. You're right. You're right. Well, Let's it is technically dew. Mountain Dew flame and hot, not flame and hot Mountain Dew. So I think you're right. right. There's a hierarchy that's been established here. Mm-hmm. It claims to have citrus. Do you get a blast? Do you get a blast of citrus, Friedrich? I think that's the flavor that we're tasting. It's or is that just the Mountain general Dew? General citrus. Gen- yeah. The Mountain Dew general citrus. Like, it's yeah. not actually yeah. a different citrus. Major melon getting. and general citrus. <laughs> I'm trying because to figure out what the... Sorry, go ahead. Because it's so underwhelming, it's not even grossing me out. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I'm not really grossed out either. Just an unpleasant kind of... Not even unpleasant, just... Okay, there's some slight burning feeling. It's like a weird, like, hey, if you had this if you had this in a normal Mountain Dew can, you'd be like, what was with that Mountain Dew? It's <laughs> a little weird. <laughs> like, it tasted yeah. a little bit like farts or something. Yeah, if you were like eating buffalo wings and then you drank this, you probably wouldn't even know that there was any... Yeah, you'd be like, okay, that was a good Mountain Dew. What's a, so I was trying to figure out what's the ingredient that adds that. Is it ester of rosin? Do you see that? Soren, you have the bottle. Ester of rosin. Yes. Am I reading that right? It's it's but it it's from the the line before. Oh, glycerol. Glycerol ester of rosin, I think, which sounds dangerous. I mean, it's like nitroglycerin in my bottle. Um. <laughs> They are highly versatile resins used in adhesives, coatings, inks, and other markets. Oh, God. Oh. So it's just a little light industrial poison to give you that burn on the back of your throat. There is, yeah, it could be. There is an ingredient in here designed to, and I quote, 
preserve freshness, and then a separate ingredient designed to protect flavor. (laughs) (laughs) That one's clearly not doing its job. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, gents, uh, no need to drag this one out. Yeah. (laughs) What do you rate it? On a scale from Buster Point Dexter's hot, hot, hot to the Reverend Horton heat, what are we rating this one? It's definitely not. It's it's definitely not to Nelly levels of it's getting hot in her. Um, because that's pretty hot. You need to take off all your clothes. Clothes <laughs> philosophy. Are the are, are the are the heat and the citrus like the like the De Niro Pacino diner scene in Heat or Ooh, yeah Again, I wish. I wish it was that <laughs> there was that much chemistry. Something went wrong in my clean canteen. I got no heat. Mm. I got like the littlest amount of heat. I got mm. the Michael Mann made for TV movie thing that happened before the movie Heat. The preheat? You wanted Val Kilmer in Heat, and you got Val Kilmer in The Saint. (laughs) Yeah, no, maybe I'm thinking of the wrong thing. Are you getting like a, now that it's been sitting in my mouth a while, got a little bit of like a cotton candy aftertaste in it? No? No, but I I can see why that would happen. (laughs) Theoretically. Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> oh man. Well, uh, I think that'll about do it for us for tonight, <laughs> yeah. friends. Um, join us next time for our next book, and uh, as always, keep your eyes peeled. We we might try to squeeze in one more of these before season's end. This has been yet another edition of Postmodern Food Factory. This has been another episode of. Postmodern Food.